as I was preparing for this morning's sermon, a number of the commentaries I came across quoted Martin Luther. Martin Luther is the scholar, the priest, the pastor who started the, what we know as the Reformation back in the 1500s. And he wrote commentaries on most of the books of the Bible. And about the passage that we read today, he said this. He said, this is a strange text and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. For I do not certainly know what St. Peter means. So we're stepping into bold territory here to try and figure out what this means. Because there was numerous other quotes kind of saying, we don't really know what in the world's going on here. And so we've been doing this series on our strange Bible, these passages that are a bit difficult to understand, passages that we read at first glance, and we kind of say, what in the world is going on? And there's a temptation sometimes when we're reading a Bible to go down these long rabbit holes and try and figure out every little detail and understand it. But the key often is to try and understand how it fits in the big picture. To say, I may not understand every single detail. I may not be able to understand exactly what Peter meant by this and who these spirits are. Although we're going to get to that and try and make some educated guesses as to what he's talking about here. But even if we don't understand every single detail, we can understand the overall concept. It was like I was talking with David Derby before the service and we were talking about one of the devices that runs the sound system. And I understand the basic idea of what it does, how it works, I don't exactly know. There's this thing called a power conditioner which somehow levels out power and it has to do with grounds. And it's like, I don't know. I just know it can help the sound system sound a little bit better. I don't need to know every detail of how it works, but I can understand this basic concept. And the same is true oftentimes in our scripture text. And there's a idea sometimes that we have to get every single word and we, we want to figure that out. And those are good and valuable, but sometimes what we need to do is pull back a little and say, what's the big idea of what's going on here? What is Peter getting at? And so let's introduce the book of Peter a little bit. So who's Peter? Peter, when he was born, was given the name Simon. And he went through his life as a fisherman. And then one day Jesus called him to be his follower. And in the midst of following Jesus, there was a moment in time when Jesus said to Simon, he said, you're not going to go by Simon anymore. We're going to call you Cephas, or in Greek, Petros, which means rock. And so he took on this name of Peter. And so he followed Jesus around, and oftentimes he was the, the impetuous one. He was the one who was jumping forward. He was the one who said, Jesus, I'll never leave you. And then he ends up denying him three times. But in the end, he's the one that Jesus looks at and he says, Peter, feed my sheep. And Peter becomes a leader in the early church. He's the one who stands up on the day of Pentecost and preaches to this crowd. And here we have him writing to Christians who are scattered. They may be Jews, they may be Gentiles, a mix of both, who are scattered. And the reason he's writing to them is because they're going through hard times. You see, because the early church wasn't always liked. Unlike today when everybody likes the church, right? There was this problem that went on where people weren't always happy. And what was going on was these people started following Jesus. They started saying, Jesus is Lord. And they started setting aside some of the old idols. Well, the idols were tied up with the economics of the system. There were idols tied up with the trade guilds. So if you had maybe a particular idol for cloth or another one for woodworking, another one for masonry, 
And so there were these sacrifices made to them. And it was all part of doing business. But all of a sudden, if you became a Christian and you weren't a part of those, maybe people didn't want to do business with you. Or they looked down on you because you were causing troubles, because you weren't following all the rules that the society had set down. And all of a sudden, you maybe found yourself put up. Maybe you were alienated from your family because you weren't willing to go and do the sacrifices that they used to do. You weren't willing to maybe worship the household gods. And so because of their following Jesus, they were on the outside. They were suffering. And so Peter is writing this letter in large part to encourage them to say, it's all okay. In the midst of this context of what's going on. And so that's where we come to this passage. We pick up, this is 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. And he says, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? And he's starting off this argument saying, harm doesn't come from doing good. He says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. In other words, sometimes even when you're doing the right thing, people won't like you. Sometimes even what you're doing when you're, even when you're doing what you're supposed to do, it might cause troubles for you. And to make his point, he talks about Jesus. Because he says, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins. And so what's the point Peter's making? Peter's pointing to this fact that Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Jesus lived a perfect life. He loved people. He loved God with his whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. But even though he did what was right, even though he was innocent, he suffered. He was hanged on a cross. He suffered physical pain, but he also suffered death. And so Peter's drawing a comparison here. He's saying, even when we do the right thing, and none of us even are as good as Jesus, and that's his point when he says, Jesus, the righteous one, suffered for the unrighteous. But he said, even when we do like Jesus, even when we do everything absolutely right, sometimes we suffer because of that. Sometimes the world, the systems of the world cause us to suffer. And so up until this point, we're kind of following along with Peter. We get the point. We get the point, okay. That sometimes when we do good, we can still suffer. And so this is this encouragement, this hope. But then he goes on and he says, well, he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And so he's continuing on with this thinking, saying, okay, he, the righteous one, suffered for the unrighteous and then kind of points to the goal of the cross was what? To bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body. He was put to death, could mean by people. He was put to death by human beings. But he was also put to death in the sense of his physical body died, but he was made alive in the spirit or made alive by the power of the spirit. And so at this point, you're tracking along saying, okay, I got it. We're all doing good. And then Peter throws this little loop in there. And you're, you're tracking and you say, and then he says, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And you go, wait a minute. To who? To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. 
And that's where we stop and say, okay, you lost me, Peter. Have you ever had those kind of conversations where you're tracking, you're following along with somebody and then all of a sudden you feel like they're gone off somewhere else? It's like that movie Up Squirrel, you know, just off, we're over here. All of a sudden there's this other conversation. But if you start to unwind what Peter's doing, you can track where he's following. I know I have those conversations sometimes where somebody says something and then they're on to a different topic. And then afterwards I say, oh, I see how they got from here to there. Sometimes I don't see how they got from here to there. And, and that's the way my, that's how my mind works because all of a sudden sometimes it's this random thought pops in and you're like, oh, and there's a connection and nobody else can make that connection, but you made the connection. And so Peter's making a connection here. And he's saying after he being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. And so here's where we start to ask the question, who is he talking about? And there's really kind of five questions. And maybe when you were in elementary school, you kind of learned these five questions, the five W's. What? Who, what, when, where, why, right? And sometimes how, but we're not going to worry about the how. So who, what, when, where, why? So who are these imprisoned spirits that he's talking to? Who did Jesus go and preach to? There's a number of different ideas out there. And that's kind of what Martin Luther was getting at when he was saying, I don't really know what St. Peter was talking about. Because people down through the ages have had different ideas. Some think that what Peter was talking about was the Old Testament saints who hadn't yet known the good news. And so they were waiting for the expectation of good news. Some think that maybe it was evil people from the days of Noah. But it doesn't seem to be talking about people. This language of imprisoned spirits and doesn't ever fit anywhere else in the New Testament, that language of dead people being in prison, that their spirits are in prison. And so the language doesn't seem to fit that. But there are a couple other passages in the Bible that give us some hints. So in Second Peter, also written by Peter, the Second Peter, this other letter that he writes, he says this, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, this is Second Peter 2 verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Or in Jude chapter 6, where it says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So there's these other biblical verses, these scriptures that point to the idea of at some point in time, when the angels rebelled or did something wrong, they were placed in a prison. They were placed in the sense of judgment. And if you want to go farther down the rabbit hole, and this is kind of Bible nerd land, there is a book called First Enoch. It's not in our Bible, and there's reasons for that. But it was a popular, if you will, commentary uh, about the Scripture. Because in the Old Testament, there's this character named Enoch early in the book of Genesis, who walks with God as he is no longer. And so the writer wrote this book about Enoch and tells this story of him. And, and it's called the Book of the Watchers. And first Enoch tells this story. And part of the book of Enoch has Enoch dealing with these angels and these creatures, these, or not creatures, these spirits who are in prison. And it all has to do with Genesis chapter 6, which is another strange passage of the Bible. So Genesis chapter 6 starts off with this story and it talks about the sons of men and the sons of women and there's these things called the Nephilim 
And there's yet another kind of weird Bible passage. But many people kind of take this as this idea that the angels or the spirits somehow transgressed the realm, transgressed their authority, stepped outside of their, and somehow with human women had children. And as a result, things were all messed up. And that's part of where the book of First Enoch picks up. And I think Peter is picking up, not so much First Enoch, but he's picking up this idea that these are spirits or that these are angels who at some point had rebelled. Whether it was the first rebellion with Satan, whether it was this rebellion of crossing in Genesis chapter 6. But then he goes and he preaches to imprisoned angels or imprisoned, well, fallen angels. See, that's perfectly normal, isn't it? Then here's what God did. That God went and what did he do? Or well, when Jesus raised from the dead, what did he do? He went to the spirits, these angels who had rebelled in prison and he went and he proclaimed to them. Well, what would he proclaim? He's proclaiming victory. He's saying that I have overcome death. That your defeat is real. And why would that matter to those people? Why would he be telling this to these people? Because what he's doing is ultimately saying there is ultimate victory. There is ultimate victory. That in the same way that the even the spiritual forces of evil, which may still be behind what's going on in the world today, they have suffered defeat, they're in prison, and Jesus has overcome them. And so what Peter is trying to do is trying to encourage the people. He's saying, this is what Jesus did. He's reminding them, the one who suffered, the one who suffered for doing good, is vindicated. He's been raised from the dead and he's reminding the forces of evil. He's reminding these spiritual forces that they have been defeated and that he is victorious. And he's using that as a way to encourage the people he's writing to because they're feeling beat down from every side. They feel like they're not going to win. And he's reminding them, he's saying, it looked like that for Jesus too initially that he had been crucified and they'd been laid in the ground. But Jesus was vindicated. He was raised from the dead. And in the same way too, you will be vindicated. So I think what Peter is getting at, he's saying he's made this proclamation to the spirits in prison. And these imprisoned spirits are these fallen angels and he's declaring victory to them and reminding the people of God of this sense of hope. Because he's always to those who were disobedient long ago. And then he makes another left turn. Or maybe a right turn. Or maybe he takes the fork of the road. I don't, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. And you think, well, wait a minute. How did we get to Noah all of a sudden? Well, if he was talking about Genesis chapter 6 and these Nephilim and all that. That's maybe how he got to Noah. A good chance there. But what else was going on in the days of Noah? It says, when God waited patiently. In other words, there was all this stuff going on. What, what was happening in the days of Noah? If we read Genesis chapter 6, the later verses, it says the world was filled with evil. And it said, but God was waiting patiently. In other words, God wasn't immediately coming down and destroying everything. And so just like the people who were reading this letter, he's saying God is waiting patiently. God isn't, is going to do things in his own time. And then Noah, what was Noah doing? Well, Peter says that he was preaching. He was also building an ark. And so God was waiting patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved. 
And so what's Peter getting at with this whole idea with Peter and the, or with, sorry, with, with Noah? Well, Noah was a minority. I mean, there were eight people saved. We know there were a whole bunch more people on the earth than these eight. And so it's in part a reminder that there was this minority. There were some who were remaining faithful. And so Peter's saying to all these other people, it's the same way today. That you might not be in the majority. You might be the minority. You might be a small amount. But God is going to save you. God is going to preserve you and keep you safe. And then he continues to get strange. He says, it ate all were saved through water. And then he makes another jump. And this water symbolizes baptism. And you think, oh my goodness, Peter. This is getting complicated. He says, that now saves you. And you think, wait a minute, wait a minute. Baptism doesn't save us, does it? He says, no, no. Baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. And so what's he saying? So what happened in the days of Noah? What happened in the story of Noah? He builds an ark and what happens? There's a rain, right? There's, there's a whole lot of water, right? The water has two functions, right? What does it do to everybody who's not in the ark? Killed it. It's a, it's a destruction. But for Noah, in some sense, the water is salvation. It protects him. The, the ark is the salvation. And in the same way, baptism is that same sort of thing. Water symbolizes, in some sense, that flood. It symbolizes it can be judgment, but it can also be life and salvation. And so when he's talking about baptism here, he's saying, no, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't, it's not the removal of dirt from the body. When you are baptized, you don't all of a sudden become a pure and perfect person. It doesn't wash away all the filth and the immorality. The water doesn't do that to you. But if you've been baptized, are you all perfect now? Did all the immorality, did all the filth go away? He says, no, what, what is baptism? He says, but a pledge. He says, the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. So baptism becomes this sense of, it's a dependence on who God is. It's a dependence on the resurrection. So Peter weaves kind of this complicated argument. He jumps from thing to thing to thing. He starts off, he says, first of all, he says, he says, do what is right. That's the consistent call of this letter of Peter. He says, you need to live holy lives. And then he makes the point, even when you live a holy life, even when you do exactly what God wants you to do, sometimes you're going to suffer because of that. The world around you is going to persecute you. He says, you ought to expect that. And he said, Jesus in the same way even suffered. Jesus had that same problem. He was perfectly righteous and he suffered. But what happened to Jesus? Jesus was buried, but then he was raised again. So God vindicated him. God said, you remained righteous in spite of the persecution and suffering. And when you were raised, you went and announced your victory even to those who were in rebellion. You announced his victory to them. Then he links that. He says, and just like in the days of Noah, you might be in the minority. There might not be a whole lot of people around you who are doing what is right, but you need to stay and do what is right. And then he makes another link. He says, and baptism is about this dependence on God. And so it all turns back, like most of the Bible does, it all turns back to Jesus. Saying Jesus is our example. Jesus is the one that we depend on. And so it's a reminder to us 
as we think about this kind of strange passage, I think Martin Luther, what he said, he says, oh, I don't certainly know what St. Peter means. I think what he meant was you can't work out all those little details. But you can work out the big picture that the point Peter is making is that sometimes we're a minority like Noah. In fact, a recent survey um, from Gallup just said for the first time um, in the United States in, in, in terms of when they've been doing surveys, less than 50% of the population identifies as churchgoers or identifies. So less than 50%. So we're in the minority in that way. And, we, and it's always been true because we know that there are, when, they, when doing surveys, of, but there's this sense that we're in the minority. Following Jesus makes us in the minority. And so we do that. He says, but it's a word of encouragement. And it's a word that we may suffer from doing good. Now, if we were to look at the whole book of 1 Peter, Peter's point is, you suffer for doing what is right and what is good. And there's also sometimes the suffering that the church endures for being a jerk. And those are two different things. Every time you suffer and somebody does something wrong to you, you can't just say, well, I'm just suffering for doing right what is right. And so we can take an extreme example. There's a church called Westboro Baptist Church, and they're still around. And they are famous for a lot of things. And one of the things is protesting. And they would go sometimes often to the funerals of, of LGBTQ people and, and hold up giant signs that say things like, God hates fags and stuff. Okay. And sometimes people yelled at them and persecuted them. That's not what Peter's talking about here. It's not about... That's not suffering for doing good. That's suffering for being a jerk. And it's the same way for us. Sometimes we think, oh, you know, just because you have the fish sticker on your car doesn't mean you get to cut off whoever you want. <laughs> or that you get the best parking place. That's not a privileged parking sign. And so suffering for doing good is the point that Peter is making. He says, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And so it's about suffering for what is doing, doing what is good. And so in the world that we live in today, he's saying there are going to be times where when you do what is right, even when you do everything right, even when you love people the way you're supposed to, sometimes you will be mistreated. Sometimes you will be looked down on. Sometimes you may, it may affect your job. Sometimes it may affect your family relationships. It may affect something. But he's reminding and saying, pay attention to Jesus and continue to follow him because in the end, you will be vindicated. Just as Jesus was raised and just as Jesus was declared righteous in the end, you too will be vindicated. And kind of a side note on that is to think, if we are never marginalized, if you never feel like you're on the outside, if you never feel like you don't fit in, then maybe you have to ask yourselves, am I a little too much like the world around me? If you think, oh, everybody likes me, nobody ever says anything about my, the way I follow Jesus, then you might have to stop and say, maybe they don't know. Or maybe I'm too much like them. So what I would encourage us to do is to think about the call to do good, to do what is right, to continue to follow Jesus and say, when I do what is right, sometimes I will suffer for it. 
And when you have those times of suffering, when you have those times of being ostracized, when you have the times of being slandered, when you have the times of being put down, stop and ask the question first, am I suffering for doing what is good? Or am I suffering just because I'm not a nice guy? Am I suffering for being there? And then if you are suffering for doing good, you say, it's okay. It's okay because that is what God has said will happen to us. It's exactly what happened to Jesus. And just as Jesus was vindicated, just as Jesus was declared right in the end, so too we will be. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. Some strange stuff going on with spirits in prison and, and Noah and arks and baptism and water. But at the heart of it all, what's he saying? He's saying, sometimes we suffer for, what's doing, for doing what's right. But that's what happened to Jesus. And if we're in the company of Jesus, we're in good company. In fact, we're in the best company. So let us continue to do good church. Let us continue to love people, even when it's hard, even when we suffer for it, because that's what we're called to do. Let us love and continue to do good. Amen.